This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. We hope you enjoy this episode from our series, Famous Fates. It's about the impactful lives and shocking deaths of history's most influential people. To hear even more episodes each week, subscribe to Famous Fates exclusively on Spotify. You see, Plato, no one wishes to be evil. The gods place within us an inherent sense of good. Then why, Socrates, do people act upon their evil instincts? Why do you believe they do, Plato? Well, it's possibly they're confused. Their internal goodness is drowned out by the ignorance that surrounds them. Very interesting. Well, now let me ask you this. Socrates! Oh, good day, Miletus. How may I serve you today? I'm here to charge you with the crimes of corrupting our youth and impiety against our democracy. You are to appear in our courts within four days or accept the punishment of death. Well, this, this, this is outrageous. Socrates has done nothing of this sort. Uh, now, Plato, calm yourself. Melitus is simply, as you said, confused and ignorant. I will see you in four days, Melitus, to defend my case and prove that I have done no such thing purposely. It shall be your head, Socrates. You've gone unpunished for too long. Is that not up to our fellow citizens to decide? Is that not up to the democracy you believe me to hate? Go now, Melitus. In a few days' time, all will be cleared. All will be made right. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Carter Roy. Welcome to Famous Fates, a podcast original exclusive to Spotify. Each week, we'll release five fresh episodes centered around a common theme, such as Hollywood icons, influential women, or music legends. In each episode, we'll take a close look at the remarkable life of a different person. With the help of voice actors, we'll dramatize their incredible lives, reimagining their greatest and weakest moments. Then we'll examine their controversial deaths. Some deaths came too soon, some remained shrouded in mystery, and some changed the world forever. Today, we're covering Socrates, one of the fathers of Western thought. He was a Greek philosopher who lived in the 400s BCE. Socrates believed in provoking people into bettering themselves and society, but it was this very attitude that led to his execution. You can find episodes of Famous Fates and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. To stream Famous Fates for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Famous Fates in the search bar. Famous Fates is a Spotify exclusive, so you can only find it on Spotify. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. 
you allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Now, back to Socrates. Before delving into the life and times of Socrates, there's a fog that hangs over the proceedings that we just have to discuss. We call this fog the Socratic problem. One of the most famous quotes attributed to Socrates is, I know that I know nothing. But what we know is that we essentially know nothing about the life of Socrates. See, much of Socrates' life is shrouded in mystery, mostly because works about Socrates from his own lifetime are extremely rare. Socrates himself didn't believe in writing. Socrates, sir, should we not be writing down your ideas? Should we not find a way to get your brilliance out to the public? It is foolish, Plato, to try to make real outside the mind what can only exist inside of it. To make an abstract thought into something manufactured is a futile effort. But, sir... And besides, writing will only make us more forgetful. I don't understand. How can creating something permanent make you forget? Ah, because you begin to only rely on the world outside your brain. You begin to focus solely on what you have written, and you no longer allow your mind to change and grow. Your mind only grows weaker and weaker, and soon enough... You've forgotten why you wrote anything down in the first place. I see. The only person to write about Socrates during Socrates' lifetime was the playwright Aristophanes, who featured him in his comedy, The Clouds. Aristophanes, however, was a writer of parody and depicted Socrates as a dirty, money-grubbing old man who corrupted the youth of Athens. Think Austin Powers if it was set in ancient Greece and starred Socrates as Dr. Evil. Definitely not how our other main sources on Socrates depict him. Those other main sources being Socrates' most noted pupils, Xenophon and Plato. In what became known as the Socratic Dialogues, Xenophon and Plato both used prose-style writing, portraying Socrates as a character leading a discussion about his life, work, and philosophies. Plato especially contributed to the legend of Socrates. He ended up writing 30 Socratic Dialogues throughout his life. That's a lot of works about one single person. No wonder the myth of Socrates grew over the years. And while these are, in fact, our greatest sources on Socrates, they still present some major issues. These dialogues are essentially presented as novels, and, well, that ends up calling into question their truthfulness. Are Plato's works accurately demonstrating Socrates as a person? Or is Plato using the image of Socrates as an image for his own philosophies? It's even possible that Plato's Socrates is a complete work of fiction, a means for Plato to simply expand his own mind and entertain his audience. Not to mention the fact that there are notable contradictions between the works of Plato and Xenophon. The colorful and lively Socrates of Plato and the cynical and straight-laced Socrates of Xenophon sometimes seem at odds with each other. Xenophon, for example, presents Socrates as an instigator, someone who steps in to teach a boy a lesson about his mother or to stop brothers from fighting. Plato instead portrays Socrates as a witty guardian angel of sorts, using questions and philosophy to trick others into solving their own problems. Entire centuries have been spent trying to find more information about the life of Socrates. Even now, archaeologists and historians are still on the lookout for new works or stories about Socrates that will help us fill in some of the gaps. Sounds like we found the plot of the next Indiana Jones movie. (laughs) And it's thanks to the real-life Indiana Joneses and 25 centuries of research that we can tell you what we do know about Socrates' remarkable life. Socrates was born in either 470 or 469 BCE, near the Greek city of Athens. 
His mother, Fina Riti, was a successful midwife, while his father, Sophroniscus, was a very successful sculptor. And his parents' successful careers afforded Socrates to attend Greece's newest innovation, public schools. The first public schools had been established just 10 years before Socrates was born. 10 years old, the same age we were when we first hated getting up for school. The education we take for granted as a normal part of our lives was certainly a luxury for Socrates. By all accounts, he was an eager and quick learner who took the time to study anything and everything he came across. Apparently, the classes he was most fond of in school were music and gymnastics. Gymnastics? I can't help but to imagine Socrates on the hobby horse. I just got a vision of Socrates landing the triple backflip while the Inception soundtrack blares in the background. Well, there's a guaranteed gold medal if ever there was one. This early education shaped the young Socrates and opened up his mind to the new possibilities that would make him famous. But nothing shaped Socrates' early interest more than the Great Panathenaea. The Great Panathenaea was a 12-day festival where all of Athens' greatest poets, artists, and athletes would gather and celebrate the goddess Athena. Think of the Olympics, but for the arts, and not broadcast on NBC. As a local resident of Athens, Socrates was required to attend the festival and pay homage to his hometown's namesake. But instead of watching the athletic competitions or touring the latest in sculpture, Socrates would seek out the festival's newest inclusion, philosophy. And thus, everything about us had to have existed from the beginning of time. Indeed. It is as I say, nothing can come from nothing. A world always had to be because a world with no world cannot be. But our world, you see, can only exist because the mind is able to control the chaos to form it into essence. But, my friend... Wow, this is astounding. Son, have you been listening to us this entire time? I'm sorry, I, I, I was just... Do not be sorry, boy. Be cheerful. You show incredible foresight to be in our company. If I may ask, how did you come up with all of this? Well, son, the mind is the most powerful of all the human elements. It can discover more infinite possibilities than our eyes or ears or hands. The truth has always been out there. It's up to us to find it. Never forget this. If you think, you are. As long as you can think, you will find the way of the truth. Socrates would rush home from these Panathenaea events, seeking out as much information about the philosophers he met as he could. But philosophy was, for now, simply a hobby. And unfortunately, not much else is known about the childhood of Socrates. The next major milestone in Socrates' life came in 450 BCE, around his 18th birthday, when, by Athenian law, he was required to begin military training. It was not long afterwards that his father passed unexpectedly, forcing Socrates to take over the family stonemason business. The young Socrates was now spending all of his time going between his military duties and his sculpting duties. And allegedly becoming a more successful sculptor than his father ever was. Many of our earliest sources on Socrates credit him as a fantastic sculptor. In fact, a statue of the Three Graces, which stood in the heart of Athens for two centuries, was credited as a Socrates creation. In another life, he could have been in the same breath as the greatest Greek and Roman artists. After two years of training and alleged artistic brilliance, Socrates properly became a member of the Athens militia and was sent on duty. 
but this was a time of peace, so Socrates was not fighting any wars yet. Instead, he was sent on trading missions, acquiring goods and services from around the known world. Not much is known about Socrates' travels. But based on what we do know about later Socrates, it's likely that Socrates took the opportunity to discover new cultures and new ideas. And other than waiting for the next Panathenaea festival, it was probably the only way for Socrates to feed his curious mind. See, in ancient Greece, your life really didn't begin until 30. Sounds like things haven't changed that much since then. (laughs) What I mean is that jury service, public office, promotions in the military, basically any means of furthering oneself in society was, by law, prohibited until a 30th birthday. And while marriage was allowed for men over 20, a man couldn't legally move in with his wife before turning 30. So the spunky 20-year-old Socrates legally couldn't further his ambition. For the next 10 years, Socrates lived the traditional life of the Greek male, living at home with his mother. So, living with your parents until you were 30 was essentially required by law and was not a parent's worst nightmare? (laughs) Correct. From 452 to 442, Socrates lived the life of an average 20-something. But right around his 30th birthday, he would finally find his calling. Legend has it that while on one of his trading tours, Socrates met up with an old friend, Chariphon, in the city of Delphi. Socrates, how are you, my old friend? Caraphon, it's been such a long time. Since the last Panathenaea, I believe. You know, I was recently asking the Oracle of Delphi about you. Really? Why would you waste the Oracle's time with such nonsense as me? You always come to be with the most brilliant of thoughts. I had to ask her if you were the wisest man in all of Greece. How could you ask such a ridiculous question? Socrates, she said you were. Impossible. There must be some mistake. How can I be wiser than all others? The oracle has spoken, and she is never wrong. But how can this be? Do not doubt yourself, Socrates. It seems even the gods are impressed by your talents. Socrates was stunned by the oracle's proclamation and sought out answers to the many questions it now brought to him. And as he began to ask questions, his philosophical beliefs began to take shape. Virtue is the most important subject we can teach in our schools. Not history, not athletics, and certainly not the ridiculous idea of mathematics. Only if our society knows true virtue can we survive. But Protagoras, if virtue is something that can indeed be taught, then why do many of our greatest generals have troublesome sons? You dare to question me? I'm only trying to understand your point of view. Is that something a common man like you could even understand? You don't even look like you can afford any of my classes. Why are you even here? Is that all you can view me as? A poor common man? Can a poor common man not understand the great mysteries of life? In any case, if any of you would like to... You still haven't answered my questions, Protagoras. Do you not have an answer? And why do you have so many questions? I know that I know nothing. I'm here to learn. You, apparently, are not here to teach. We'll return to our story in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to Socrates. 
Socrates found zero satisfaction in the current crop of Greek philosophers and continued to question their theories, hoping to find inspiration. Through this questioning, Socrates created what may be his greatest legacy, the Socratic method. Socrates was not happy enough with just knowing a person's most basic beliefs. He needed to know their reasoning, the whys and the hows. Claiming ignorance on every subject, Socrates would refuse to stop his questioning until he was pleased with the answers or until the other person gave up. The Socratic method was more of an annoyance than a revelation to the scholars of Greece at the time. But as centuries pass, its influence is still felt. Aristotle's development of the scientific method can be traced directly from Plato's teachings about Socrates. So, if you remember filling out those scientific method worksheets in the science classes at the school you hated waking up for, well, thank Socrates for that. It also inspired the teaching method known as the Socratic Seminar, where the students control the lesson through their own questioning, with the teacher only there to further the discussion along. One of the few examples where letting the inmates run the asylum actually works. The Socratic method might be one of the reasons that we actually know very little about Socrates. How so? Well, Socrates spent most of his time questioning, right? Oh, I see where you're going with this. It's possible that he was so focused on his questioning and so convinced that he knew nothing that he never provided any concrete answers about himself. The Socratic problem rears its ugly head. Which reminds me of the one thing that all of our sources on Socrates agree on, that he was an extremely ugly man. Of all the things we wish to know about Socrates, that's the thing we're all in agreement upon? He was described by all as a satyr of a man, with the bulging eyes of a crab, the flat nose of a pig, and the large lips of a donkey, with long, unkempt hair and perpetually unwashed feet. And considering the high standard of beauty the Greeks held, yikes. The combination of his unusual looks and unusual questioning had already put Socrates near the top of Athens' hit list. But the issues bubbling between Socrates and the Athens elite were put on hold for a moment as Socrates was once again sent off to war. A power struggle for control of Greece had been brewing between the Athenians and another major city-state, the Spartans. The very same Spartans whom, ten years before the birth of Socrates, defeated the Persians by yelling, this is Sparta, over and over again? It's a little more complicated than that, but it is true that after claiming final victory over the Persians, the Spartans continued to gain strength and power, and viewed Athenian democracy as an inferior form of rule to their oligarchy. And in 431 BC, the Spartans started up their revolt. The Peloponnesian War had begun. For the next 30 years, the Spartans and the Athenians would engage in a grueling series of battles, sneak attacks, and political miscalculations. A war so intense that almost every eligible Greek male was called to action. Which, of course, included Socrates. Socrates was a man of his country and fought nobly for the Athenians. Socrates' talents as a soldier were legendary. For one thing, he survived the war, so that's got to count for something. But he also was a noted war hero and a warrior who would go out of his way to save the lives of his fellow men. Watch the flank on the left. Socrates, where are you going? General Alcibiades is down. I see a path to saving him. If I am to do it, I must do it now. But if they catch you on the right, you'll be through. Our only path to happiness is through acting on true virtue. This is as virtuous a situation as I may ever see. Fine. I'll cover you as best I can. Good luck. General Alcibiades! Hurry! We must get you away from here! Socrates, why did you risk your own life for mine? We can discuss and debate these matters later, General. For now we must leave, before there are no more lives for us to risk. You're a good man, Socrates. 
calling Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg, Saving Private Socrates is your next big hit. Between Saving Private Socrates and our Indiana Jones pitch, I think we've got the next five years of Spielberg's career. Do you think Matt Damon would make a good Socrates? Yeah, I guess we'd have to change the definition of the word ugly. Hmm. Okay, back to actual Socrates then. Socrates found himself involved in some of the Peloponnesian War's biggest battles. But these 30 years weren't just filled with valiant efforts on the battlefield. Socrates had lengthy periods where he was off-duty and back in Athens, where he would continue his questioning ways. And had started to gain a following among the youth of Athens. Socrates' questions would fluster and embarrass his fellow philosophers, whose unrivaled intellectual power was now suddenly rivaled. In many circles, Socrates was seen as mocking his contemporaries. Like a Stephen Colbert of ancient times. Yeah, that's one way to put it. These young men were amused as Socrates made a fool of their elders, and as a bonus, were genuinely engaged by the new ideas Socrates' questions presented. There were many who wished to be taught by Socrates, following a long tradition of Greek teachers and students. And Socrates was just as eager to teach. The marketplace is busy today. If I cut across this alley, I should be able to avoid most of it. Sir, excuse me, your stick is in my way. I shall let you pass, but only after you answer my questions. Sir, I really must be going. Once you answer my questions, you're free to go where you please. Okay, I will answer your questions. Where do they make the freshest meats? If you were to head down this road, then left, all the way down to the statue of Hermes, you will find the freshest meats. Where do they make the most intricate woven blankets? Most likely by the bathhouses on the other side of town. Where do they make men of the highest virtue? I do not know the answer to this. Then come and follow me. Wait, you are Socrates, aren't you? I am. And what is your name? Xenophon, sir. Xenophon. Do you wish to follow me and learn to be a good and honest man? Of course. Then let us go. Socrates' following continued to grow, with men like Xenophon and Plato keen to consider his every question. But the elders and leaders of Athens did not view Socrates as the next great genius. They only saw him as a dangerous outcast. Socrates was basically an anti-Athenian and lived his life against what the average Athenian normally stood for. For one, he refused to accept any money for his teachings and had long given up his father's stonemason business. Instead, he chose to live a life of poverty. For a society where everyone's ultimate goals were fame, fortune, and power, this was a strange sight. The fact that Socrates neither pursued a life of labor nor a life of political fame would be offensive to some Athenians. To emphasize his choice of poverty, he refused to bathe, wear shoes, or cut his already unkempt hair, which only added to his infamous ugliness. Well, that last one would be especially troublesome if you consider that long hair was more of a Spartan style than one of Athens. Probably not in the best taste to have that hairstyle during the war, but more so than his looks, his ideas were beginning to throw Socrates into hot water. Socrates was an equal opportunity questioner. Men, women, the youth, the elderly, the rich, the poor, even slaves were all subject to Socrates' curiosity. Socrates even credited two women as the most important teachers in his life. This was absolutely sacrilegious in Athenian society. And Socrates didn't minimize the importance of these women either. One, a priestess he attributed with teaching him everything about love, and the other, the wife of an Athenian general, told him everything he could learn about rhetoric. Two constant subjects of Socrates' discussion, as portrayed by Plato. Socrates found value in all voices, an idea very ahead of his time. It was an interest founded in another idea that miffed the Athenians. Socrates claimed that he was a messenger of the gods. 
I used to question why the oracle had proclaimed me to be the wisest man in Greece. How could I be wise when I know nothing? But I have now realized this was the oracle's point. I am the only one wise enough to realize my own ignorance. And it has become my duty to bring this wisdom to Athens. As my internal voice, the voice of the gods, demands, I must follow. Well, this was no light matter. The gods were everything to Athens. Claiming to hear a divine voice put one under high scrutiny. It would be one thing if you aspired to a higher position in society after hearing divine voices, but to seemingly have no ambition like Socrates? It was blasphemous. But what really contributed to the downfall of Socrates was something that was completely out of his power, the political upheaval that surrounded him. That 30-year Peloponnesian War ended with Athens in the Lost Column, and with Sparta now the center of power in Greece. Athens was in chaos. The center of the world was now so far from the center, it was on the outer reaches of Pluto. Or Hades, since we're talking about Greece. So there was a ton of political infighting and hostile takeovers. The once proud Athenian democracy was crumbling, and Socrates somehow kept finding himself in the middle of it. Near the end of the war, Socrates was selected by lottery for the only public position he ever held, the epistats. Think a one-man Supreme Court, an overseer for the Greek justice system. And during his period as the epistats, Socrates was faced with a very big and controversial case. Six Athenian generals were being tried for abandoning their men. They insisted that they went after a retreating Spartan navy and that their men were already dead. But the Athenian people, in the midst of their political strife, were out for blood, looking for someone to blame for the losing effort against Sparta. They called for the heads of these generals and put enough pressure on the General Assembly to sentence them all to death. A sentence that was overturned by the one man who could, Socrates. I will do nothing that is contrary to our law, something that this trial has been for its entirety. Trying the generals together for a crime unjustly put upon them goes against every tradition our city has set forth. Therefore, I announce this trial to be illegal, and no vote for the sentence shall be held. Kill them all! Kill them all! If you wish to prove the virtues of this city and the fairness of our government, you may try them again as individuals. But as we stand here now, my decision is final. Socrates' decision would be for naught, as the generals were tried and killed as soon as he left the position, but his stand was not forgotten. There were worries about Socrates and the influence he could have, but for now, there were more pressing matters on Athens' door. Soon, the democracy officially fell, overtaken as a group of 30 men seized power and began a bloody and tyrannical regime. The 30 tyrants, as they would later be known, restored the oligarchy. And really, there would not be a better name for them. You're not kidding. During their brief period of rule, they murdered 5% of the Athenian population. That is a lot of killing. Roughly 7,000 people's worth. Certainly a statement maker. They were a paranoid group looking to keep their power by any means necessary, and they too saw Socrates as a threat. They first tried to ban Socrates from talking to any man under 30. A very specific and very hard to enforce law. Indeed, that strategy did not work. So their next plan was to corrupt Socrates in the eyes of his followers. Many of Socrates' students had been following him for years at this point. How were they planning to suddenly sour them on their hero? By implicating him in their killing spree, the 30 tyrants called for Socrates and four other men to go out and bring back General Leon of Salamis, who Socrates had fought alongside so he could be executed. And what was Leon's crime? Nothing. 
The 30 wanted to execute him as a show of power. They must have known that Socrates wouldn't perform such an injustice. Exactly. It was a win-win for the 30 tyrants. If Socrates went, he would lose his students and his influence. If Socrates ignored the order, they would execute him for treason. I would guess Socrates chose option two. You are correct. The other four men left to capture Leon. Socrates went home. It seemed like the perfect plan for the 30. And it probably would have worked if the 30 tyrants hadn't been overthrown and the democracy restored. Socrates escaped by the skin of his ugly teeth. And yet the Athenian democracy feared him as much as the 30 did. What's funny about all this is that Socrates had absolutely zero political ambition. Well, that may have been true for Socrates, but the optics did not look good. Mm, How so? Well, for one, he survived the rule of the 30. Despite it being luck, it was suspect that Socrates was one of the few men of any sort of popularity or power to live. So, some might have believed that he was in cahoots with the tyrants. Yes, especially considering that one of the 30 was actually a former student of Socrates. Ah, yeah, I can see how that might be viewed in a negative light. Plus, Socrates had friends on all sides of the political spectrum. Some worried that Socrates was positioning himself into power no matter which political party or system rose up next. Though it is more likely that Socrates was friends with everyone because he simply wanted to acquire knowledge from all sides. And then there was the youth problem, the part of Socrates' life that always kept him at odds with his contemporaries. No matter what time in history you find yourself, the old fear the power of the young. And in a time of political instability, seeing a man with that much of the town's youth in his corner was another political shift waiting to happen. Be it to make an example out of him or because they genuinely feared him, Socrates was arrested in 399 BC on the charges of corrupting the youth and opposing democracy. Many of Athens' most respected speechwriters offered to defend Socrates for free. Socrates was adamant about defending himself, a highly unusual practice. This only added to the view of Socrates as a highly unusual man. Most citizens in court would have simply begged for mercy. Socrates, defying all convention, argued for his own importance. And you claim, Socrates, that you do not seek any power? I do not. Not in the way that you would think of it. I am but the gadfly of Athens. A gadfly? Just as the gadfly bites the horse into action, so do I sting the city of Athens into furthering our society. Quiet. Now, Socrates, what makes you think we need change? I have tried to push this city beyond its obsession with wealth and fame and political relationships. My questions make Athens consider its morality and the state of its eternal soul. To seek true justice and true goodness and to examine the unexamined life, that is my role. That is my power. That is enough, Socrates. But do you yet understand? That is enough. It was a bold and risky maneuver by Socrates, but one that was consistent with the life he chose to lead. Finally, after days of arguments and deliberation, the jury of 500 made its decision. This court finds Socrates guilty of all charges, the punishment of which is death. Now, as per our tradition, Socrates, you are free to argue to the court an alternate form of punishment. Hmm. Well, I feel as if our government should pay me a significant wage. And I should also obtain free meals at the Prytaneum, just as our Olympic athletes do. It is only fair after all the work I've done for Athens. You dare mock our trial? I only speak the truth. The sentence of death remains. The verdict is final. 
We'll return to our story in just a moment. Now, back to Socrates. Perhaps asking to be considered a hero at your own trial was not the best of strategies. But perhaps it is also the best way to define Socrates, a man who saw everything in a different light, no matter what the consequences might be. Despite last-minute attempts by his followers to change the penalty, it was to no avail. It seems Socrates' fate was as set in stone as his old sculptures. But it wasn't. Like a classic Greek myth, his fate seemed to be ever-changing. He survived war and tyrannical massacre, and now he might survive an actual death sentence? At the time of Socrates' trial, the Athenians began their annual celebration of Theseus' defeat of the Minotaur. Part of this tradition was sending a ship to the island of Delos, the birthplace of Apollo. As long as the ship was at sea, no executions could take place in the city. Which would have given Socrates about 30 extra days to live. His followers took every opportunity to try and help Socrates escape. They raised money to bribe the guards and even planned an escape route. Everyone assumed that Socrates' survival was a sure thing. Everyone except Socrates himself. Socrates, we can get you out. We can send you to Crete or even Sparta. You can continue your work. We have the money to- And do you believe I'll fare well in any of these places? I, what do you mean? Send me to Crete, to Sparta, even to Troy. Will I not cause the same problems there as here? Escape is futile, useless. It seems I belong nowhere but where I am. But sir, I have a duty to Athens. Despite our disagreements, I am still an Athenian, through and through. And I am subject to the same social contract as any other citizen. If I were to break that contract, what example would I be setting for everyone? But sir, you are going to die. Death is not something to fear, Serto. Sure, it is unknown. Perhaps a dreamless sleep. Or perhaps I shall soon be having discussions with new friends in the underworld. But whatever death brings, I am ready to accept it. As soon as word got to Athens that the ship had reached Delos, Socrates was given a cup of poison hemlock to drink. He drank from the cup and proceeded to walk around his jail cell until his legs felt numb, at which point he laid down and let the poison flow to his heart. I can feel my soul escaping. It feels wonderful. Socrates, thank you for everything. Serto, we owe a rooster to Asclepius. Please, don't forget to pay this debt. Socrates, Socrates! He is gone now, Serto. Let him rest as his soul journeys to the beyond. Socrates' last words, as reported by Plato, seems like quite a random statement and has been up for interpretation by scholars ever since. Asclepius was the Greek god of curing illnesses. It's likely that Socrates was feeling death as a cure for his pure soul, a soul no longer stuck on earth. Some modern scholars offer a different interpretation, that Socrates believed the only way to cure Athens of its ills was Asclepius himself. Or maybe Socrates actually owed a sacrifice and simply forgot about it until death. Like remembering you forgot to get milk right after you get home from the store. Well, whatever the meaning of those words was, Socrates was dead at the age of 71. But his legacy was not. In the immediate aftermath of his death, many of his students formed their own schools to continue the teachings of Socrates. The most famous of which was Plato's Academy, which influenced and changed education technique for years to this very day. And at the Academy, Plato taught everything new about Socrates to Aristotle. Who then taught these same lessons to Alexander the Great. 
who then took over the entire world. On the back of Socrates' teachings, of course. The legend of Socrates only grew as more and more schools of thought were inspired by his ideas. Scientific philosophy, cynicism, stoicism, Socratic irony, platonic love, even the formation of the United States government were all influenced by Socrates. In fact, Socrates was so significant in developing the study of philosophy that we divide the history of the subject into pre-Socratic and post-Socratic terms. When you have eras named after you, you know you're a pretty big deal. And that's why we're so determined to find answers to the Socratic problem. It seems there is still so much we can learn from Socrates, a man who changed the world only by following his own path. Thanks for listening. You can find more episodes of Famous Fates and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Famous Fates is a Spotify exclusive. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Famous Fates, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Famous Fates on Spotify, just open the app and type Famous Fates in the search bar. Remember, it's a Spotify exclusive, so you can only find the show right here. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. If you want to hear more episodes like this, subscribe to Famous Fates, available exclusively on Spotify.